Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we talk with Art Dicker, director at RMP China Lawyers, a boutique PRC law firm that supports international business in China. He is also the director at Acclimb China, which offers a complete suite of premium accounting and tax compliance services in China. Art has spent the last 14 years working in China to advise technology, manufacturing, and consumer companies on structuring their investments and managing legal risk in their operations. He has a deep understanding of the practical difficulties and cultural gaps faced by international headquarters in managing their legal risk in China, having served as Asia-Pacific General Counsel at Cadence Design Systems for six years prior to RMP. Art speaks with us about the differences he has countered between working in Shanghai and working in Beijing, the types of companies that are finding success in China, the nature of legal risk in China, the historical landmarks that help shape and form law in China as we know it today, data privacy considerations, China's corporate laws, and common mistakes foreign companies make in negotiating and drafting contracts with Chinese companies. Enjoy. Foreign companies, they're used to their home market where things are clear and the lawyers that they hire can give them a, a relatively clear answer. And we can't do that. And we're very honest about that. What we can do is we can tell you what other companies are doing. We can tell you what the regulators are trying to do based on a lot of times just an overall understanding of the broader macro policy goals that are going on here. You got to have a sense of what the government is trying to do overall as a strategy. You got to know what they're trying to accomplish and then you can understand what risk might be a little more acceptable to take. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Art, welcome to the show. Good to have you on here. Hey, Todd. It's a pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. We, you know, we go back uh, quite a ways, back to the days in, in Shanghai and uh, you being a part of China Accelerator and the work we were doing over there, doing our, our mentor breakfasts over at uh, mm-hmm. Element Fresh and things. We you had a lot of good times back then. And I want to get everybody else up to speed on you and your background. So let's start with an introduction of yourself and how you ended up in China. Sure. Um, happy to. And so I studied Chinese way back in university in dating myself here a bit in the late 90s, um, when far fewer people were studying Chinese than, than today. For sure, people were st- still studying Japanese back then, if you were interested in kind of East Asian studies. Uh, and then I came to China first in 1998 to do a summer language program uh, up in Beijing. Uh, and I was uh, went back, graduated, came back again to keep studying with the, the Chinese for another year and then didn't really know what to do after that and kind of was kept kind of punting on what to do with my life. And uh, so I went finally, like everyone that doesn't know what to do with their life, they go to law school. So I went to uh, GW for law school back in D.C., 
uh, still didn't really know exactly what to do after that and what kind of law to practice and where to do it. So I, I knew I had a lot of school, school loans to pay off. So the best way to do that is to work at a big law firm and went to New York. And I just kept having this itch to go back, uh, to come back to China. Um, I'd put in all that time to study the language, um, was still fascinated by the culture, um, the political economy, everything about the place and couldn't shake that. And so um, my Chinese was super rusty. And I remember when I decided to go come back in 2007, you know, in between kind of slaving away on these um, as a, as a, as a minion lawyer on these MA deals, um, I was trying to find a tutor to help me get my Chinese back and I could barely say a sentence. But when I did come back in 2007 at a different firm in Beijing, uh, I, within a month, it all came back. So that just shows you the testament of having good Chinese language teachers and being in a natural language environment here where it's all around you. And so, so with that, I was, I was, you know, I was kind of felt back in my proper place again, using everything I'd studied uh, all combined and uh, was in Beijing for four and a half years. And then um, at a law firm, Morrison Forrester, helping mostly foreign tech companies come here, American tech companies, and kind of got the itch, a a different itch to go in-house to uh, one of our clients and kind of see what uh, a company looked like from the inside rather than kind of write these fancy memos and never know what happened afterwards. Um, and so I went to a company called Cadence Design Systems, which is an EDA software. So it's 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 like super, super sophisticated CAD software that you use to design semiconductor chips and was there for six years um, as the Asia Pacific General Counsel. Um, got to learn everything about the semiconductor industry and left in 2017. Um, initially wanted to, uh, I'd gotten an executive MBA along the way and kind of with a couple of um, uh, classmates, we decided to start a business um, helping Chinese companies go out and look for technology to acquire. Um, We just ran into a lot of problems um, at that point where these kinds of acquisitions became more and more political and then just came back to law and, you know, you know, never really left. And so I'm now at RNP China Lawyers. It's a Chinese law firm and it's similar to what I've did earlier on in Beijing, um, where helping foreign companies, especially technology companies, come here, set up, figure out the regulations and and structure their investments and so forth. You know what I'll tell you, people, if you want to have a significant inferiority complex and just carry that week to week, month to month with you, you should host a podcast and then interview extremely smart and well-initialed people along the way and uh, <laughs> you will you will regularly feel nice and humbled that's quite the background my friend quite the background probably a little too much background there <laughs> now it's uh it's amazing well i mean it was all important it just i i don't think it was uh the train had never slowed down once there it was just a you know, accomplishment after accomplishment. I love how you just threw in. I just, you know, picked up an MBA along the way. Um, <laughs> like you were stopping for groceries on the way home. Uh, so, yeah, that's, I'm a lifelong student. I think that's what it is. I'm a lifelong student. I just don't study. So, <laughs> well, if books. I don't like the tests. I like studying and learning. I just don't want to have to prove I know anything. Thing. Executive MBA, the E is for easy, not for executive. You don't have to, there's no crunching spreadsheets or, or anything like that. It's, it's more the concepts. 
I wanted to ask if you could off the top, because I know you, like you said, you were four and a half years at the firm in Beijing. Yep. I know you now have your firm down in Shanghai, maybe at a, at a high level without predecessing a lot of the talking points that we want to get to juxtapose the landscape now and and i'll i'll forewarn our audience or or try to at least give some some uh taste of why i'm asking this is because shanghai and beijing they have a bit of a rivalry it's like Mm -hmm. a new york la rivalry it's a toronto vancouver rivalry right like there's Mm -hmm. (laughs) you you come back from a trip gone to beijing and you come back to shanghai and people go how was your trip to beijing you didn't like it did you they were really mean to you weren't they you know (laughs) they want they want it they they want proof that they you know shanghai is better or beijing's better but from the legal landscape maybe from a high level what is it what is different um about beijing and shanghai yeah, certainly. Um, yes, like on a personal level, you're right. I mean, I think everybody goes through that journey where a lot of folks like me, you know, I had the choice a bit to come to come back to Beijing or Shanghai. The firm that I was interviewing at and 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 went to had an office both places, but I chose Beijing because to me that was the real China, right? Like, you know, I'd studied Chinese there um, all that time, and that was to me culturally like the the center of the universe in China and. Um, you had the hutongs and, you know, that felt like the real China, whereas Shanghai was this, you know, even back then was this major, major like global city that was, you know, wh- why would you go there when you're just coming from New York? It's just going, it's it's not that different in the sense that, you know, you're, it's, it's, it's the international city, whereas, and, and less Chinese, perhaps you could say. But when um, I was there for four and a half years, from the business side, I don't know, I think Shanghai all the, the multinational companies usually choose to set up their, their first office or their headquarters here. So I think there's just more, um, more opportunities here as well. Yeah. I, I remember some of the, you know, the, the, what do they call the, the pollution apocalypses mm-hmm. uh, sometimes, you know, to put it in perspective and, and just for our listeners who don't know how the gauge works when, when you say it could go over 500 on the index i would say on a really bad day in la you might be pushing 150 mm-hmm. i don't know with that and you know just trying to put it in perspective you know i maybe vancouver closer to where i am a really bad day is about 30 so mm-hmm. to put in perspective when the aqi goes over 500 pm 2.5 aqi in in beijing you know that it is it is dense uh, and unhealthy uh, at the same time. And that was one of the major reasons when I was moving from Dalian to Shanghai, the pollution and having a family and things that 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 played a really big role in it. However, on the flip side, you're right. I mean, if you want true, be- you know, you want to be in Sh- in China, Beijing is the place. Sh- Shanghai is not necessarily China. It's it's a it's one of the most metropolitan cities in the world it's run by chinese it's in china um it is based on china it has a phenomenal history of its own but being so multicultural and intercontinental in in its just shape and form um i don't think if you really want to experience true china that you would go to shanghai first you would probably go to shanghai last yeah totally it's a global city i mean if you go to beijing and you try and speak english right there's the same thing with all right i mean they're, they're not you know you're not gonna um you're not gonna have as much luck but here in shanghai you know chances are you within within you know 
30 seconds, you're going to find someone around that can help you speak English if you don't speak Chinese. So it's just a, it's just easier for all around, I think, for, for foreigners to, to live here. Right. But, but then you're the trade-off, right? You don't maybe get the same experience, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. You can't go into the hutongs and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's more traditional. And would you say that that is probably on par with, the radius from Beijing because Beijing is PRC central. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of companies, I think a lot of C-level executives, they will have offices in Beijing. They will have residences in Beijing. They will spend a lot of time in Beijing. They may not keep their family in Beijing. They may not, you know, spend their vacation their summertime or whatnot in in beijing but being close to and having being identified and seen as as located close to the central heartbeat of the prc and the government is an important almost optic Mm -hmm. that a lot of companies want to have yeah totally i mean you know of course like beijing has jongguansuan right where where uh and and wudako the neighborhoods up by the universities up there beijing and xinhua and and just to give a little more story like when i was there studying chinese you know 20 20 years ago or so like there was there was nothing up there right there was the universities and that was it and then you'd go maybe you'd take like a five minute bike ride up north of Tsinghua campus and you'd start to see fields almost um so and now that's huge you know like all the tech companies microsoft google they all have like campuses up there and it just keeps expanding and then, and so you got if you're a tech company for sure you got to be in beijing um because of the ecosystem up there and even if you're not like like you said you know you got even consumer companies right like they've got um they've got government relations departments right you got to be in beijing to get uh, a sense of of what the regulators are thinking because they're all there right um on on you know data privacy rules that come out um uh or you know new new license requirements like you got to be there we keep an office there as well even though we're, we're far bigger here in shanghai just because for the same reason we have you know we need to be in beijing to, to have a sense of what's going on because we've we've taken this conversation early on into a lot of talk about the the, the cities and the infrastructure and, and things like that, I'm having one of the more nostalgic episodes, at least for me, that I've had in a, in a long time. There's a lot of stuff that I miss. I miss the food. I miss the streets. I miss the the little hole in the wall cafes. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of things that I miss. I love uh, right now. I'm sitting here. I love all cities there equally, except maybe Shenzhen because it is just so hot and humid. <laughs> it's almost unbearable. Uh, for those who don't know, Shenzhen, factory capital of the world, just outside of Hong Kong. Okay, let's move on. You work primarily with foreign technology companies coming to China. Now, I think a prevailing thought is that most tech companies are giving up on trying to do business in China because it's just such a difficult legal environment to try to figure out. What kind of companies you think are finding success there? Yeah, um, it's a good question because for sure, like if you if you follow um, the, the media or even social media, right? I remember I put a post up uh, a while back on LinkedIn talking about you know um, foreign tech companies coming to China, blah blah blah, SaaS SaaS companies coming, and someone a, a good friend of mine made a made a, a polite comment saying like, can you name a successful you know foreign tech company in China? And I think people um, 
think about all of the the high profile failures and 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 people will say recently now LinkedIn is a failure as well. Um, you know, LinkedIn still has a huge you know, uh, user base here, right? Now, maybe if you look at it as a percentage of the population of China, it's not huge, but it's still huge globally. And, and you know, um, they, there are still recruiters here that are using them and using LinkedIn and finding ways to use LinkedIn um, to recruit for global recruitment needs, right? And so they have that base here. And if you, and, and we can go down the line, I know you're even more familiar than with these cases, Todd, than I am. Um, you know, um, the sale of Uber to DD and all of that, you know, I know it's hard to say that these are always failures. And I think the bigger point is for B2C companies, yeah, okay, it is, B2C tech companies, it is it is tough sometimes. But what you never hear about are these enterprise SaaS companies, which no one has ever heard of, um, you know, in the kind of the general public. Um, but they're serving like a niche market here, um, you know, for like supply chain management, um, for um, data um, analytics. Um, and you don't hear about these guys, but they provide a service that a local company here is not providing. I mean, this this is what we do the best in the U.S. We produce enterprise SaaS companies. I mean, that's really what, I mean, among, of course, there's other hard tech we're good at, semiconductors that I know well as well, but what we're really good at is software. And there's still a lot of um, need for that here in China. Uh, and so we see those companies coming over every week we see a new enterprise SaaS company expanding into the market here. You know, usually it's if they're about pre-IPO or they just went IPO on NASDAQ and their investors are pushing them to come here because it's a huge market. And so why are you not in China? Um, and it's not time to be scared anymore. You know, you got to go and there's ways to make it work. And that's what we help them with. How would you describe then the nature of legal risk uh, in China and how does that compare to the nature of legal risk elsewhere, North America, Europe and such? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, when I went to law school and you're trained in case law, right, and that's what the U.S. and some of these other common law countries around uh, the world are all about. You know, you have precedents of case cases which courts follow and are and are kind of binding on on future courts and you have. Uh, you know, Congress in the U.S. with all this legislative history. So you can see um, laws and the intent, right? Because that's key when you're interpreting it. You know, even the laws themselves are written very clearly um, with defined terms. I mean, there's lots of lawyers working there and making sure that everything is written very clearly. So there's always risk in the U.S. too, of course, being compliant with laws and, and so forth. But or or other you know major major um, economies in the in the Western world and in China, um, it's part of it is you know things are evolving so fast here. Uh, technologies and markets are evolving so fast. So in some ways, it doesn't make sense to write the laws so crystal clear because things change. I think ICP you mentioned is an is an example of that. For example, uh, it's a perfect example. And at the same time, I think of course. You know, the regulators here um, want to have a bit of discretion. So the rules here are not 100% crystal clear when they're drafted. And you don't get the benefit of this, obviously, this congressional history to tell you what the what what the legislature is, is thinking when they're trying to do this, what they're trying to protect, the, the interests that they're trying to protect, the risk they're trying to cover for, for, for the economy or society or whatever. So I think that's a different starting point. 
And when companies come here, they're foreign companies, they're used to their home market where things are being clear, they're clear. And the lawyers that they hire can give them a, a relatively clear answer. And we can't do that in many cases here. We just can't. And we're very honest about that. What we can do is we can tell you what other companies are doing um, in that, you, that are similar to yours, whether they're local or foreign. Uh, we can tell you what the regulators are trying to do based on a lot of times just an overall understanding of the broader kind of macro like policy goals that are that are going on here. So I know a lot of people say this, but it really is true. You got to kind of have a sense of what's what the government is trying to do overall as a strategy. And then, you know, and, and data is a perfect example of that recently with the rules that came out or ICP again. Um, you got to you got to know what they're in, what they're trying to accomplish. And then you can understand um you know, what risk might be a little more acceptable to take and whatnot. But at the end of the day, you got to take risk. You got to take it eyes wide open. And it's a big market. If you try to be, if you try to cover every risk possible, you you just, you can't even do business here or anywhere for that. So I think um, there's more risk here, but you just have to accept it and, and cover your bases as best you can. I wanted to ask a question that I was ruminating about leading up to to talking to you about the history of the legal system thinking of north american and european law thinking about the magna carta thinking about the rule of law that typically governs and and i think just gives a lot of at least a lot of us in north america this sense of security in that if something happens we can always go and sue them or something along these lines. And it got me to thinking, I'm like, I wonder what the historical major implication, right? Where did law come from? It wasn't obviously adopted from a Western perspective, although they've brought, I think, a lot of it closer. Um, I know a lot of, you know, contracts and, and from the investment side of things, a lot of it has been, you know, best practices have been borrowed from Silicon Valley uh, as as China over the last 25 years really started to spin up a lot of investment in tech as well. But is there maybe a bit of a historical? I, I'm not asking. I don't know if you're any kind of historian on Chinese law and where it came from. Yeah, well, I'm a historian, but not necessarily about. Yeah. If you could comment to maybe just how what you know of how China law grew up and became China law as it is today. Sure. I'll take a stab at it. Thank you. Chinese law is, is is civil law as opposed to common law. So again, like the big difference there is common law, in which started in the UK back in like the feudal lords, you know, 500 years ago or something. Those That was based on case law. Like I said, courts decided and then they set the precedent and they kind of fill in the gaps where the the the, the laws are not clear as when they're passed, right, by, by the legislature. Um, and, and that's common law. And then there is um, civil law, which is where, where literally, yeah, just the, the legislature passes a law and everything is self-contained, right? So everything is there that you're supposed to need. And courts decide cases. But when courts decide cases, it's not necessarily binding on a future court. You know, like, like the, the parties that go in front of the, the court, you know, they can say, hey, there was this case three years ago, which is similar to our case. Um, so we think it's persuasive that you should do the same thing, but there's no 
sense of like the judge has to follow that case because of, you know, uh, another court or a higher court made a decision that way. And so that's the starting like basic framework. Uh, and then kind of the historical context, it, it, you know, I think it has a few sources. It comes from from Soviet, uh, if you want to go way back, like Soviet era law, maybe as a starting point, as well as I think a lot of German law was uh, pre- uh, kind of civil law um, code was adopted. But you're right. Nowadays, um, it is still a civil law system, but a lot of the inspiration um, is coming from other countries. So uh, back in 2008, um, there was a big revision to the the labor contract law, where China in prior to that did not have a lot of protection for 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 employees, and it totally flipped the switch. I mean, it, 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 these that law in 2008 was much more you know um, kind of French style or European style of, of worker protections and severance and all that kind of stuff. So it was a total uh, 180. And, and that was the inspiration for those changes that they drew from from European sources. Most recent example, which I'll which I'll finish the question on, is um, the Personal Information Protection Law, which is the new law that came out last year, late last year, and it definitely draws inspiration from GDPR in in Europe. And there's a lot of similarities because that's best in practice as far as um, and and they're not gonna, you know, they're not gonna. In, write these laws from scratch now because they've seen what's worked and what hasn't worked arguably in other places. So they're, they're much more sophisticated about drafting these laws these days. Is there an opportunity that exists in China more than other places for the law to be influenced? I think in North America, we potentially naively believe that the law cannot be influenced. It is written down in books. It is black and white. There are precedents um, and that we have an understanding that we can always trust the law to rule fairly uh, and equitably uh, when asked to. I'm wondering, would you say the same about is am I am I even right about North American law for in the first place? And would you be able to say the same about law in China? Well, uh, let me stick to, um, you know, how companies work, where, you know, um, sue each other and, and, and enforce stuff. So the, for sure, um, once you get outside of the major cities, um, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Beijing, maybe not even the second tier, but like the third tier cities, you're, you're definitely dealing with less sophisticated courts and the judges, you know, they don't have as much experience, they're younger um, and the older judges maybe didn't even have like legal formal legal training, although I think there are far fewer of those folks still in the system these days. And so that's something you have to deal with, whether you're a Chinese company or you're a foreign company. If you've got a complicated commercial dispute, you're going to run into the problem. It's just, you know, the courts, the judges may not have the experience to deal with your case um, well. And so um, but in Shanghai and Beijing and, and like I said, Shenzhen, these places are, are are very sophisticated on IP protection. Um, you name it. There's they're usually seen pretty much every kind of commercial dispute, and the judges are really quite quite professional. And and you know, we often advise um, our our foreign clients coming here to actually choose China as the place to do their contract enforcement. Like you in a contract. If you're if you're a foreign company and you have a 
uh, Chinese counterparty here, because it's a cross-border contract, you can actually choose which law you want to govern and you can choose where the parties have to go, what kind of, where the court has to be that they go. It can be in China or it can be out of China. So, so you have a choice, but we, even in those situations, we still tell them in most situations to actually pick China because first of all, like the courts are, are, are much more sophisticated here, like I said, than before. So you're not necessarily dealing with that problem anymore. And even on like kind of the bias problem that people perceive that there's like a home court advantage here. Again, like in the major cities where most of these foreign companies are located anyway, you're not really going to see that anymore. Um, and so you're going to get a pretty fair shake when you go to court here, even as a foreign company. So there's no, there's only disadvantages to choosing outside of China sometimes because the company you're, 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 you're going to sue may not have any assets outside of China. You can win in court, but you might not get at, at, be able to get at any of the assets they have easily. So what, what was the point of, of doing that then? Great point. Great point. Is it becoming or has it been or will it be? I'll just kind of cover all the future, past, present. Could it be prohibitively difficult and expensive, et cetera, for companies, especially foreign companies, to comply with all the new regulations coming to China? And I'm especially thinking about what you mentioned about the data protection and data privacy stuff. Yeah, so um, that's it's a very good question because we get that a lot. And, you know, people also generally have this conception that, like, that the, the new China data laws um, are super onerous and and there's all this extra work that they have to do and, and it's something totally new they need to wrap their head around when that's if if they're already a global company like usually, usually most even let's say North American companies when they come to China they've usually already set up in in Europe so they're already familiar with GDPR and have a, a starting point to work on um, and it's not like this Herculean effort to try and understand the law here. Um, if you're familiar with GDPR, if you already have like privacy policies built around that, if you already have a process internally to capture data, process data, get those consents from users and, and store it locally if you need to, then it's not so different when you're coming here. Yeah, for sure there are different requirements here, um, but it's not like you're starting from scratch. And so I think that's one thing we, we get people a little comfortable with. And then the other big misconception that I see a lot, uh, again, sticking to data is this, everyone thinks, you know, I think Tesla made the decision, right, that, that all their data would be stored here. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. No, not necessarily all legal that's driving that. Um, but then, and then people, in, you know, extrapolate from that and they're like, okay, so then all companies have to store their data in China. No, that's not true, actually. It depends what industry you're in, depends on the volume your data, of, of data you're collecting. It's is it personal, is it just non-personal? That's a huge difference. And so, uh, you know, it's not, again, to my broader point, like it's not necessarily this huge burdensome requirement that everyone um, initially thinks it is. One of the biggest challenges for foreign companies that we've heard about or seen listed by other organizations surveying their membership has been IP protection. Is that still the case today in 2022? Yeah, I mean, like touched on a little bit already, but I think that, um, you know, the example I like to give a lot in other people certainly do as well is they look at um, Japan, you know, Japan, I think 
back in the 80s and so so on, maybe the 70s before that, had this image of being, you know, just rank, rampantly stealing companies' IP and, 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 and not having a great system to protect IP and all that. And then Japanese companies started having their own IP to protect and protecting it just as much from other Japanese companies as they were from foreign companies. And the same thing kind of happened in China. So, um, you know, over time, like China in the beginning was obviously like very deficient in kind of poor, poor IP and over time um, has been developing its own. Huawei is a great example. Huawei has tons of patents, right? Uh, and and you can go down the line of other major tech companies here, and and they're fighting each other over over um, you know copyrights and patents and trademark infringement cases. So when they do that, they kind of raise the bar for everybody, including um, foreign companies here. And the courts are not going to be like, oh well, you know, you're 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 Huawei or you're Tencent. You know, we're going to give you we're going to give you special treatment. It doesn't work like that anymore. The system. Um, is better for everybody. Kind of the rising tide has lifted all ships. And so um, I think the situation has improved uh, dramatically on IP protection. It's not perfect for sure, but it's it's not as big of a concern that foreign companies list as they like on those AmCham annual surveys as they used to. Let's move on to your firm and talk about the kind of work that RMP does. So if you could maybe start with an explanation of what kind of work RMP does do. Sure. Yeah. We are a Chinese law firm, but we're a bit unusual in the sense that the vast majority of our clients are foreign clients. You know, so a lot of, we're a full service firm. So I'm not trying to like plug us in an advertisement here too much, but we're, we're, we're a full service firm so that we can handle kind of any, any, any cases, including like litigation and stuff. But um, we're pretty focused on foreign clients. So I think that's what makes it a little different. Um, but I mean, like I said at the top, you know, what I'm doing at, at the firm is very similar to what I did when I first got to China working at an international firm. And, um, and so we've got a broad range of consumer experience, manufacturing experience, tech as well. So we, we cover all bases and, um, and we're a good mix, I think, of foreign and, and Chinese lawyers kind of working together to give a good experience to the client. That's my marketing, marketing, uh, uh, spiel all perfectly memorized uh, before you thought. <laughs> That's too funny. China's corporate laws are often short and vague. Not that I've, made an effort to read a ton of them, but that's what I understand. How do you deal with that as a lawyer educated in the U S where laws have, and I, and I apologize for saying this, but just endless pages of defined and redefined terms, congressional history, common law, case law, uh, precedents to now, uh, in, in helping guide people on how to actually comply. How, how do you juxtapose and deal with the, the two sides of that? Uh, yeah, it's a good question because when we get clients, coming over they're they're trying to do business knowing that it's vague and and initially frustrated with that at the same time they got to come here as i mentioned because someone's pushing them the investors in their company or or, or the, the market if they're public already uh the analysts and so forth and so they've got this push to come and figure it out and so in some sense like when where where there's a will there's a way and i think what we do for them is try to find a way for them to comply as best as they can 
with the laws being gray, with the structures being like a little bit unorthodox. If you ever heard of these BIE structures, for example, people look at them and they're like, what the hell is that? And, and um, it's this thing that Chinese companies started off using listing to get around the, some of the investment restrictions here for foreign companies in tech. And then, and then other tech companies, foreign tech companies use them as well. So there's these weird structures that they might have to be get themselves familiar with, get comfortable with. And it's all to deal with these rules, which are, which are a bit vague and, and not what you, they're used to seeing. And, and that's what honestly makes it fun. And so it makes it fun because if I was still back in the U.S. in New York, I'm pretty sure I'd be miserable um, just being a corporate lawyer there. But in China, you really have to be, and I know this is cliched a bit, but you have to be like a cultural interpreter just as much as you have to be a lawyer. You have to, first of all, you have to be able to read and speak Chinese, especially at this day and age. Um, so one of the things that I pride myself on a bit, not to pat myself on the shoulder too much, but like you got to actually get into the, the law itself as written in Chinese and not uh, not translated for you and know the words and know, know the dis- distinctions between different terms in Chinese and what the connotations are and all that stuff. Because we're really, a lot of times we are kind of guessing as educated guests as best we can what the law itself is trying to do and how our client can can comply and the last thing i'll say is about this is like you know i also say this a lot what we're trying to give our clients is a story um you know because i said nobody can perfectly comply with these laws especially because they're so vague so what you're trying to do is you try and come up with a story where you have done as best as possible to comply with the law as it's written and as you understand it and we can help you understand it and so that if you are ever challenged by someone a regulator or your competitors more often will flag you to the regulators if they don't you know if they want to mess with you um, then you got to have stories like look we're complying this is how we're complying this is how we interpreted the law uh, we know the law is there this is what we think is is okay to do and we talked to legal counsel and we got this advice and blah 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 versus like being like what you know what are you talking about willis like you know like like from back whatever good good times or whatever that show was it's like you have no idea what they're talking about right um, and 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 that is not going to work here at all. We're saying it's it's vague. We we threw up our arms and just went it plowed ahead. So that's what we try and help our clients with. You know, I always knew that there was just something that might be a little bit off with you, Art, and the fact that you just said you like <laughs> some things about law. And you actually enjoy it. I mean, that there's there's my answer. There's my answer. It's law. You're not supposed to like law. Nobody's supposed to like law. It's not likable. No, we go into it by accident, just like I did. Like I said, no, most most people don't actually want to go to law school. They just don't know what to do with them. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I never had that thought. I. Uh, it's funny because actually, growing up, I did want to be a lawyer, but uh, then I realized how much work it was. And how much reading was involved, not just reading, but you actually had to remember what you read and then repeat it in some form. And I was like, well, that's not for me then. Although I do quite a bit enjoy arguing. So maybe I could have been a court lawyer of some some degree. You would have been a good one, I think, Todd. I'll give you that for sure. 
I, I think I might have done okay. I think I might have done okay. It's it's always been a dream that I just thought, you know what? If it wasn't for my darn ADHD and lack of emotional control, I might have been really good <laughs> as a lawyer. What are the most common mistakes you see foreign companies make in negotiating and drafting contracts with Chinese companies? Yeah, cool. Good question. Because I think a lot of times people come here and they feel like they need that perfect kind of contract where they've won on every point in the contract and uh at, you know there's like a lot of times people will say well in, in china the contract is not worth much more than like the paper it's written on kind of mentality and so a chinese party may just let the foreign party kind of put in whatever terms they want the foreign party's like wow we got a great contract here we're ready to go and the local party and the local company in China is like, okay, good luck with that one, right? If you actually need to enforce it. Because again, like I said, they'll put like dispute resolution clause, like they'll put it in New York. That's great. Sue us in New York. We don't have any assets in New York. We don't have any assets in the US. And if you win in the US, you got a judgment from the court, nice piece of paper, bring that to China. You can't enforce it. You can't enforce it because there's no treaty recognizing judgments um, from the U.S. into China. So your judgment is worthless, basically. So you spend all that time drafting a perfect contract for home court, uh, for court in your home turf, you win and it's worthless. So um, that's the, I think, the idea, uh, that's one of the, the most obvious kind of common mistakes that I think foreign companies make. Um, and I just think, you know, also just in general, relying on the contract, right, you know, we see a lot of these, uh, whether it's venture capital contracts for investment, or we see, um, you know, uh, joint ventures where they put in a lot of like these veto rights, you know, the foreign party can veto these kinds of decisions. That stuff does not necessarily matter if you don't control the chops, if you're not the legal representative of the company, and you don't have senior people here on the ground. Forget it. It doesn't matter what uh, kind of veto rights you have in the contract. That's also not valuable if you don't have real operational control here on the ground. So these are the kind of things I see a lot in mistakes in making and drafting contracts. Going back to my comment about uh, something being off with art, uh, I think you and I and all of our listeners know between the two of us who's the one that's just a little bit off, and <laughs> it's definitely me. I I really appreciate this, man. This has been a pretty fantastic episode. I know that a lot of people should probably get in touch with you. I'm actually, and I'm not lying, I'm staring at an email uh, of a founder uh, who has been approached by a venture firm who wants to help him expand into China. He's got reservations, not sure how to happen. Can I help? Uh, and, you know, these are the types of things where I, I would want to direct somebody to go and potentially talk to you. How do people get in touch with you? How do people follow you, your podcast, anything you're blogging? Tell our audience how to follow, get in touch and absorb everything about Art Dicker. Yeah, thanks, Todd. Appreciate it. Um, first, I mean, super grateful to have, to to come on your show. I'm a I'm an avid listener. I listen to um, almost every episode, so a real thrill to come on. And I do have a podcast as well. It's called Gambe, um, and so you can just search on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever Gambe G A N B E I, uh, and we talk about cross border business and and, and so forth. And for work, um, yeah, I'm at RMP China Lawyers. You can look at look me up on our website, rp rplawyers.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way. 
um, just ping me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm super active there as well. Uh, and yeah, I'm happy to, to reply to anybody that's got a question or needs just some initial advice. Always happy to talk. Art Dicker, director at RMP China Lawyers and an old friend of mine, mentor China Accelerator and the like. Thank you very, very much for coming on the show today. This was actually a lot of fun. I probably had more fun and the audience will will notice me being a little more glib than usual. This was a blast. Had a great time. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Doc. Thanks for having me. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.